So we worked to train village health workers to get as many children as possible vaccinated and to treat the main child killers as early as possible in small health facilities that could be reached even by mothers who had to walk. This is the cruel calculus of extreme poverty. It felt almost inhuman to look away from an individual dying child in front of me and toward hundreds of anonymous dying children I could not see. I remember the words of Ingeyerd wrote, who had been working as a missionary nurse in Congo and Tanzania before she became my mentor. She always told me, in the deepest poverty, you should never do anything perfectly. If you do, you are stealing resources from where they can be better used. Paying too much attention to the individual visible victim rather than to the numbers can lead us to spend all our resources on a fraction of the problem and therefore save many fewer lives. This principle applies anywhere we are prioritizing scarce resources. It is hard for people to talk about resources when it comes to saving lives or prolonging or improving them. Doing so is often taken for heartlessness. Yet so long as resources are not infinite, and they never are infinite, it is the most compassionate thing to do, to use your brain and work out how to do the most good with what you have. This chapter is full of data about dead children because saving children's lives is what I care about most in the whole world. It seems heartless and cruel, I know, to count dead children and to talk about cost-effectiveness in the same sentence as a dying child, but if you think about it, Working out the most cost-effective way of saving as many children's lives as possible is the least heartless exercise of them all. Just as I have urged you to look behind the statistics at the individual stories, I also urge you to look behind the individual stories at the statistics. The world cannot be understood without numbers, and it cannot be understood with numbers alone. The Size Instinct You tend to get things out of proportion. I do not mean to sound rude. Getting things out of proportion or misjudging the size of things is something that we humans do naturally. It is instinctive to look at a lonely number and misjudge its importance. It is also instinctive, like in the hospital in Nikala, to misjudge the importance of a single instance or an identifiable victim. These two tendencies are the two key aspects of the size instinct. The media is this instinct's friend. It is pretty much a journalist's professional duty to make any given event, fact, or number sound more important than it is, and journalists know that it feels almost inhuman to look away from an individual in pain. The two aspects of the size instinct, together with the negativity instinct, make us systematically underestimate the progress that has been made in the world. In the test questions about global proportions, people consistently say about 20% of people are having their basic needs met. The correct answer in most cases is close to 80% or even 90 percent. 
Proportion of children vaccinated, 88%. Proportion of people with electricity, 85%. Proportion of girls in primary school, 90%. The use of numbers that sound enormous, together with constant images of individual suffering presented by the charities and the media, distort people's view of the world, and they systematically underestimate all these proportions and all this progress. At the same time, we systematically overestimate other proportions, the proportion of immigrants in our country, the proportion of people opposed to homosexuality. In each of these cases, at least in the United States and Europe, our interpretations are more dramatic than the reality. The size instinct directs our limited attention and resources toward those individual instances or identifiable victims, those concrete things right in front of our eyes. Today there are robust data sets for making the kinds of comparisons I made in Nicola on a global scale, and they show the same thing. It is not doctors and hospital beds that save children's lives in countries on levels one and two. Beds and doctors are easy to count, and politicians love to inaugurate buildings. But almost all the increased child survival is achieved through preventive measures outside hospitals by local nurses, midwives, and well-educated parents, especially mothers. The data shows that half the increase in child survival in the world happens because the mothers can read and write. More children now survive because they don't get ill in the first place. Trained midwives assist their mothers during pregnancy and delivery. Nurses immunize them. They have enough food. Their parents keep them warm and clean, people around them wash their hands, and their mothers can read the instructions on that jar of pills. So if you are investing money to improve health on level one or two, you should put it into primary schools, nurse education, and vaccinations. Big, impressive-looking hospitals can wait. How to Control the Size Instinct To avoid getting things out of proportion, you need only two magic tools, comparing and dividing. What did you say? You already know both of them? Great. Then all you need is to start using them. Make it a habit. I'll show you how. Compare the Numbers the most important thing you can do to avoid misjudging something's importance is to avoid lonely numbers. Never, ever leave a number all by itself. Never believe that one number on its own can be meaningful. If you are offered one number, always ask for at least one more, something to compare it with. Be especially careful about big numbers. It is a strange thing, but numbers over a certain size, when they are not compared with anything else, always look big. And how can something big not be important? 4.2 million dead babies.
Last year, 4.2 million babies died. That is the most recent number reported by UNICEF of deaths before the age of one worldwide. We often see lonely and emotionally charged numbers like this in the news or in the materials of activist groups or organizations. They produce a reaction. Who can even imagine 4.2 million dead babies? It is so terrible, and even worse, when we know that almost all died from easily preventable diseases. And how can anyone argue that 4.2 million is anything other than a huge number? You might think that nobody would even try to argue that, but you would be wrong. That is exactly why I mentioned this number. Because it is not huge. It is beautifully small. If we even start to think how tragic each of these deaths is for the parents who have waited for their newborn to smile and walk and play and instead had to bury their baby, then this number could keep us crying for a long time. But who would be helped by these tears? Instead, let's think clearly about human suffering. The number 4.2 million is for 2016. The year before, the number was 4.4 million. The year before that, it was 4.5 million. Back in 1950, it was 14.4 million. That's almost 10 million more dead babies per year compared with today. Suddenly, this terrible number starts to look smaller. In fact, the number has never been lower. Of course, I am the first person to wish the number was even lower and falling even faster, but to know how to act and how to prioritize resources, nothing can be more important than doing the cool-headed math and realizing what works and what doesn't. And this is clear. More and more deaths are being prevented. We would never realize that without comparing the numbers. A large war. The Vietnam War was the Syrian war of my generation. Two days before Christmas in 1972, seven bombs killed 27 patients and members of staff at the Bat Mai Hospital in Hanoi in Vietnam. I was studying medicine in Uppsala in Sweden. We had plenty of medical equipment and yellow blankets. Agnita and I coordinated a collection, which we packed in boxes and sent to Bat Mai. Fifteen years later, I was in Vietnam to evaluate a Swedish aid project. One lunchtime, I was eating my rice next to one of my local colleagues, a doctor named Niem, and I asked him about his background. He told me he had been inside the Bat Mai hospital when the bombs fell. Afterward, he had coordinated the unpacking of boxes and supplies that had arrived from all over the world. I asked him if he remembered some yellow blankets, and I got goosebumps as he described the fabric's pattern to me. It felt like we had been friends forever. At the weekend, I asked Niem to show me the monument to the Vietnam War. You mean the resistance war against America, he said. 
Of course, I should have realized he wouldn't call it the Vietnam War. Niem drove me to one of the city's central parks and showed me a small stone with a brass plate, three feet high. I thought it was a joke. The protests against the Vietnam War had united a generation of activists in the West. It had moved me to send blankets and medical equipment. More than 1.5 million Vietnamese and 58,000 Americans had died. Was this how the city commemorated such a catastrophe? Seeing that, I was disappointed. Niem drove me to see a bigger monument, a marble stone 12 feet high, to commemorate independence from French colonial rule. I was still underwhelmed. Then Niem asked me, if I was ready to see the proper war monument. He drove a little way further and pointed out of the window. Above the treetops I could see a large pagoda covered in gold. It seemed about three hundred feet high. He said, Here is where we commemorate our war heroes. Isn't it beautiful? This was the monument to Vietnam's wars with China. The wars with China had lasted on and off for 2,000 years. The French occupation had lasted 200 years. The resistance war against America took only 20 years. The sizes of the monuments put things in perfect proportion. It was only by comparing them that I could understand the relative insignificance of the Vietnam War to the people who now live in Vietnam. Bears and Axes Marie Lachen was 38 years old when she was killed by multiple blows to the head from an axe. It was the night of October 17, 2004. Marie's former partner had broken into her house in the small town of Piteå in the north of Sweden and was waiting for her to come home. The tragic and brutal murder of a mother of three was barely reported in the national media, and even the local newspaper gave it only modest coverage. That same day, a 40-year-old father of three, also living in the far north of Sweden, was killed by a bear while out hunting. His name was Johan Vesterlund, and he was the first person killed by a bear in Sweden since 1902. This brutal, tragic, and crucially rare event received massive coverage throughout Sweden. In Sweden, a fatal bear attack is a once-in-a-century event. Meanwhile, a woman is killed by her partner every 30 days. This is a 1,300-fold difference in magnitude. And yet one more domestic murder had barely registered, while the hunting death was big news. Despite what the media coverage might make us think, each death was equally tragic and horrendous. Despite what the media might make us think, people who care about saving lives should be much more concerned about domestic violence than about bears. It seems obvious when you compare the numbers. Tuberculosis and Swine Flu It is not only bears and axes that the news media gets out of proportion. 
In 1918, the Spanish flu killed around 2.7% of the world population. The risk of an outbreak of a flu, against which we have no vaccine, remains a constant threat, which we should all take extremely seriously. In the first months of 2009, thousands of people died from the swine flu. For two weeks, it was all over the news. Yet, unlike with Ebola in 2014, the number of cases did not double. It did not even go up in a straight line. I and others concluded this flu was not as aggressive as the first alarm had indicated, but journalists kept the fear boiling for several weeks. Finally, I got tired of the hysteria and calculated the rate of news reports versus fatalities. Over a period of two weeks, 31 people had died from swine flu, and a news search on Google brought up 253,442 articles about it. That was 8,176 articles per death. Over the same two-week period, I calculated that roughly 63,066 people had died of tuberculosis, TB, Almost all these people were on levels 1 and 2, where TB remains a major killer, even though it can now be treated. But TB is infectious, and TB strains can become resistant and kill many people on level 4. The news coverage for TB was at a rate of 0.1 article per death. Each swine flu death received 82,000 times more attention than each equally tragic death from TB. The 80-20 rule. It's so easy to get things out of proportion, but luckily there are also some easy solutions. Whenever I have to compare lots of numbers and work out which are the most important, I use the simplest ever thinking tool. I look for the largest numbers. That is all there is to the 80-20 rule. We tend to assume that all items on a list are equally important, but usually just a few of them are more important than all the others put together. Whether it is causes of death or items in a budget, I simply focus first on understanding those that make up 80% of the total. Before I spend time on the smaller ones, I ask myself, where are the 80%? Why are these so big? What are the implications? For example, here's a list of the world's energy sources in alphabetical order. Biofuels, coal, gas, geothermal, hydro, nuclear, oil, solar, wind. Presented like that, they all seem equally important. If we instead sort them according to how many units of energy they generate for humanity, three outnumber all the rest, oil, coal, and gas. To give myself the big picture, I would use the 80-20 rule, which tells us that oil plus coal plus gas give us more than 80% of our energy, 87% in fact. I first discovered how useful the 80-20 rule is when I started to review aid projects for the Swedish government. In most budgets, around 20% of the lines sum up to more than 80% of the total. You can save a lot of money by making sure you understand these lines first.
Doing just that is how I discovered that half the aid budget of a small health center in rural Vietnam was about to be spent on 2,000 of the wrong kind of surgical knives. It's how I discovered that 100 times too much, 4 million liters of baby formula was about to be sent to a refugee camp in Algeria. And it is how I stopped 20,000 testicular prostheses from being sent to a small youth clinic in Nicaragua. In each case, I simply looked for the biggest single items, taking up 80% of the budget, then dug down into any that seemed unusual. In each case, the problem was due to a simple confusion or tiny error, such as a missing decimal point. The 80-20 rule is as easy as it seems. You just have to remember to use it. Here's one more example. The PIN code of the world. We can understand the world better and make better decisions about it if we know where the biggest proportion of the population lives now and where it will live in the future. Where is the world market? Where are the Internet users? Where will tourists come from in the future? Where are most of the cargo ships going? And so on. Fact question 8. There are roughly 7 billion people in the world today. In what proportion are they spread across the globe? This is one of the fact questions where people score best. They are almost as good as the chimps. Their answers are almost as good as random. By this point in the book, what looks like a great achievement? You see, it all depends on how you compare. Seventy percent of people still pick a map showing one billion people on the wrong continent. Seventy percent of people don't know that the majority of mankind lives in Asia. If you really care about a sustainable future or the plundering of our planet's natural resources or the global market, how can you afford to lose track of a billion people? The PIN code of the world is 1114. That's how to remember it. From left to right, the number of billions as a PIN code. America's 1, Europe 1, Africa 1, Asia 4. I have rounded the numbers. Like all PIN codes, this one will change. By the end of this century, the UN expects there to have been almost no change in the Americas and Europe, but 3 billion more people in Africa and 1 billion more in Asia. By 2100, the new PIN code of the world will be 1145. More than 80% of the world's population will live in Africa and Asia. If the UN forecasts for population growth are correct, and if incomes in Asia and Africa keep growing as now, then the center of gravity of the world market will shift over the next 20 years from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean. Today, the people living in rich countries around the North Atlantic, who represent 11% of the world population, make up 60% of the Level 4 consumer market. Already by 2027, if incomes keep growing worldwide as they are doing now, 
then that figure will have shrunk to 50 percent. By 2040, 60 percent of Level 4 consumers will live outside the West. Yes, I think the Western domination of the world economy will soon be over. People in North America and Europe need to understand that most of the world population lives in Asia. In terms of economic muscles, we are becoming the 20%, not the 80%. But many of us can't fit these numbers into our nostalgic minds. Not only do we misjudge how big our war monument should be in Vietnam, we also misjudge our importance in the future global marketplace. Many of us forget to behave properly with those who will control the future trade deals. Divide the numbers. Often the best thing we can do to make a large number more meaningful is to divide it by a total. In my work, often that total is the total population. When we divide an amount, say the number of children in Hong Kong, by another amount, say the number of schools in Hong Kong, we get a rate, children per school in Hong Kong. Amounts are easier to find because they are easier to produce. Somebody just needs to count something. But rates are often more meaningful. The trend below the division line. I want to return to the 4.2 million dead infants. Earlier in the chapter, we compared 4.2 million babies to the 14.4 million who died in 1950. What if fewer children are being born every year, and that's the reason fewer babies are dying? When you see one number falling, it is sometimes actually because some other background number is falling. To check, we need to divide the total number of child deaths by the total number of births. In 1950, 97 million children were born and 14.4 million children died. To get the child mortality rate, we divide the number of deaths, 14.4 million, by the number of births, 97 million. That comes out to 15 percent. So in 1950, out of every 100 babies who were born, 15 died before their first birthday. Now let's look at the most recent numbers. In 2016, 141 million children were born and 4.2 million died. Dividing the number of births by the number of deaths comes out to just 3%. Out of every 100 babies born across the world, only three die before reaching the age of one. Wow! The infant mortality rate has changed from 15% to 3%. When we compare rates rather than amounts of dead children, the most recent number suddenly seems astonishingly low. Some people feel ashamed when doing this kind of math with human lives. I feel ashamed when not doing it. A lonely number always makes me suspicious that I will misinterpret it. A number that I have compared and divided can instead fill me with hope.
per person. The forecasts show that it is China, India, and the other emerging economies that are increasing their carbon dioxide emissions at a speed that will cause dangerous climate change. In fact, China already emits more CO2 than the USA, and India already emits more than Germany. This outspoken statement came from an environment minister from a European Union country who was part of a panel discussing climate change at the World Economic Forum in Davos in January 2007. He made his attribution of blame in a neutral tone of voice, as if he were stating a self-evident fact. Had he been watching the faces of the Chinese and Indian panel members, he would have realized that his view was not self-evident at all. The Chinese expert looked angry, but continued to stare straight ahead. The Indian expert, in contrast, could not sit still. He waved his arm, and could barely wait for the moderator's signal that he could speak. He stood up. There was a short silence, while he looked into the face of each panel member. His elegant dark blue turban, an expensive-looking dark gray suit. And the way he was behaving in his moment of outrage confirmed his status as one of India's highest-ranking civil servants, with many years' experience as a lead expert at the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. He made a sweeping gesture toward the panel members from the rich nations, and then said loudly and accusingly, "It was you." The richest nations that put us all in this delicate situation. You have been burning increasing amounts of coal and oil for more than a century. You and only you pushed us to the brink of climate change. Then he suddenly changed posture, put his palms together in an Indian greeting, bowed, and almost whispered in a very kind voice. But we forgive you. Because you did not know what you were doing, we should never blame someone retrospectively for harm they were unaware of. Then he straightened up, and delivered his final remark as a judge giving his verdict, emphasizing each word by slowly moving his raised index finger. But, from now on. We count carbon dioxide emission per person. I couldn't have agreed more. I had for some time been appalled by the systematic blaming of climate change on China and India based on total emissions per nation. It was like claiming that obesity was worse in China than in the United States. Because the total body weight of the Chinese population was higher than that of the U.S. population, arguing about emissions per nation was pointless when there was such enormous variation in population size. By this logic, Norway, with its population of five million, could be emitting almost any amount of carbon dioxide per person. In this case, the large numbers. Total emissions per nation needed to be divided by the population of each country to give meaningful and comparable measures. When measuring HIV, GDP, mobile phone sales, 
internet users or CO2 emissions, a per capita measurement, that is, a rate per person, will almost always be more meaningful. It's dangerous out there. The safest lives in history are lived today by people on level four. Most preventable risks have been eliminated. Still, many walk around feeling worried. They worry about all kinds of dangers out there. Natural disasters kill so many people, diseases spread, and airplanes crash. They all happen all the time out there, beyond the horizon. It's a bit strange, isn't it? Such terrifying things rarely happen here, in this safe place where we live. But out there, they seem to happen every day. Remember, though, out there is the sum of millions of places. Where you live is just one place. Of course, more bad things happen out there. Out there is much bigger than here. So even if all the places out there were just as safe as your place, hundreds of terrible events would still happen there. If you could keep track of each separate place, though, you would be surprised how peaceful most of them were. Each of them shows up on your screen only on that single day when something terrible happens. All the other days, you don't hear about them. Compare and divide. When I see a lonely number in a news report, it always triggers an alarm. What should this lonely number be compared to? What was that number a year ago? Ten years ago? What is it in a comparable country or region? And what should it be divided by? What is the total of which this is a part? What would this be per person? I compare the rates, and only then do I decide whether it really is an important number. Factfulness Factfulness is recognizing when a lonely number seems impressive, small or large, and remembering that you could get the opposite impression if it were compared with or divided by some other relevant number. To control the size instinct, get things in proportion. Compare. Big numbers always look big. Single numbers on their own are misleading and should make you suspicious. Always look for comparisons. Ideally, divide by something. 80-20 Have you been given a long list? Look for the few largest items and deal with them first. They are quite likely more important than all the others put together. Divide Amounts and rates can tell you very different stories. Rates are more meaningful, especially when comparing between different sized groups. In particular, 
look for rates per person when comparing between countries or regions. Chapter 6 The Generalization Instinct Why I had to lie about the Danes and how it can be smart to build half a house. Dinner is served. An orange sun was setting behind the acacia trees on the savanna of the Bandundu region, south of the Congo River. Half a day's walk from the end of the paved road. This is where you find the people who live in extreme poverty. They are stuck behind that mountain, beyond where the road ends. My colleague Torquil and I spent the day interviewing the people in this remote village about their nutrition, and now they wanted to throw us a party. No one had ever walked so far to ask them about their problems. As Swedish villagers would have done a hundred years ago, they were demonstrating their gratitude and respect by serving their guests the biggest piece of meat they could find. The entire village was gathered in a circle around Torquil and me as we were presented with our plates. On top of two large green leaves lay two whole-skinned, grilled rats. I thought I might throw up. Then I noticed that Torquil had already started eating. We were both very hungry after a whole day's work with no food. I looked around at the villagers who were smiling at me expectantly. I had to eat it, and I did. It was actually not that bad. It tasted a bit like chicken. To be polite, I tried to look happy as I swallowed it down. Then it was time for dessert. Another plate full of big white larvas from the palm nut tree. And I do mean big. Each one was longer and thicker than my thumb and had been lightly fried in its own fat. But I wondered, had they been too lightly fried? Because they seemed to be moving. The villagers were proud to offer us such a delicious treat. Remember, I am a sword swallower. I should be able to push anything down my throat. And I am not usually a fussy eater. I had even once eaten porridge made from mosquitoes. But no, this I couldn't do. The heads of the larvas looked like little brown nuts, and their thick bodies like transparent wrinkled marshmallows, through which I could see their intestines. The villagers gestured that I should bite them in two and suck out the insides. If I tried, I would puke the rat back up. I did not want to offend. Suddenly an idea. I smiled softly and said regretfully, You know what? I am sorry, but I can't eat larvas. Torquil turned to me surprised. He already had a couple of larvas hanging out of the corners of his mouth. He really loved those larvas. He had previously worked as a missionary in Congo, where they had been the highlight of every week for one whole year. 
You see, we don't eat larvas, I said, trying to look convincing. The villagers looked at Torquil. But he eats them, they asked. Torquil stared at me. Ah, I said. You see, he comes from a different tribe. I come from Sweden. He comes from Denmark. In Denmark, they love eating larvas. But in Sweden, it's against our culture. The village teacher went and got out the world map, and I pointed out the water separating our two countries. On this side of the water, they eat larvas, I said. And on this side, we don't. It's actually one of the most blatant lies I have ever told, but it worked. The villagers were happy to share my dessert between them. Everyone, everywhere, knows that people from different tribes have different customs. The Generalization Instinct Everyone automatically categorizes and generalizes all the time, unconsciously. It is not a question of being prejudiced or enlightened. Categories are absolutely necessary for us to function. They give structure to our thoughts. Imagine if we saw every item and every scenario as truly unique. We would not even have a language to describe the world around us. The necessary and useful instinct to generalize, like all the other instincts in this book, can also distort our worldview. It can make us mistakenly group together things, or people, or countries, that are actually very different. It can make us assume everything or everyone in one category is similar. And maybe most unfortunate of all, it can make us jump to conclusions about a whole category based on a few, or even just one, unusual example. Once again, the media is the instinct's friend. Misleading generalizations and stereotypes act as a kind of shorthand for the media, providing quick and easy ways to communicate. Here are just a few examples from today's newspaper. Rural life, middle class, supermom, gang member. When many people become aware of problematic generalization, it is called a stereotype. Most commonly, people talk about race and gender stereotyping. These cause many very important problems, but they are not the only problems caused by wrong generalizations. Wrong generalizations are mind blockers for all kinds of understanding. The gap instinct divides the world into us and them, and the generalization instinct makes us think of them as all the same. Are you working for a commercial company on level four? There's a great risk you're missing the majority of your potential consumers and producers because of your generalizations. Are you working in finance in a big bank? There's a great risk you are investing your clients' money in the wrong places because you're bundling together people who are vastly different. Fact question nine. How many of the world's one-year-old children today have been vaccinated against some disease? A. 20%. B. 
50%, C, 80%. To compare ignorance between different kinds of experts, the regular polling companies couldn't help me. They don't have access to the staff of big corporations and government organizations. That's one reason I started polling my audience at the start of my lectures. I have tested a total of 12,596 people at 108 lectures over the last five years. The worst results came from an annual gathering of global finance managers at the headquarters of one of the world's ten largest banks. I have visited three of them. I can't tell you which one this was because I signed a piece of paper. A roaring 85% of the 71 well-dressed bankers in the room believed that a minority of the world's children had been vaccinated. An extremely wrong answer. Vaccines must be kept cold all the way from the factory to the arm of the child. They are shipped in refrigerated containers to harbors around the world, where they get loaded into refrigerated trucks. These trucks take them to local health clinics, where they are stored in refrigerators. These logistic distribution paths are called cool chains. For cool chains to work, you need all the basic infrastructure for transport, electricity, education, and health care to be in place. This is exactly the same infrastructure needed to establish new factories. The fact that 88% are vaccinated, but major financial investors believe it is only 20%, indicates that there is a big chance they are failing at their jobs by missing out on huge investment opportunities, probably the most profitable ones in the fastest-growing parts of the world. You make this kind of false assumption when you have a them category in your head, into which you put the majority of humanity. What images are you using to imagine what life is like in this category? Are you perhaps recalling the most vivid and disturbing images from the news? I think that is exactly what's going on when people on level four answer this badly on this kind of fact question. The extreme deprivation we see on the news ends up stereotyping the majority of mankind. Every pregnancy results in roughly two years of lost menstruation. If you're a manufacturer of menstrual pads, this is bad for business. So you ought to know about and be happy about the drop in babies per woman across the world. You ought to know and be happy, too, about the growth in the number of educated women working away from home, because these developments have created an exploding market for your products over the last few decades among billions of menstruating women now living on levels two and three. But as I realized when I attended an internal meeting at one of the world's biggest manufacturers of sanitary wear, most Western manufacturers have completely missed this. Instead, when hunting for new customers, they are often stuck dreaming up new needs among the 300 million menstruating women on level four. What if we market an even thinner pad for bikinis? What about pads that are invisible to wear under lycra? How about one pad for each kind of outfit, each situation, each sport? 
special pads for mountain climbers. Ideally, all the pads are so small they need to be replaced several times a day, but like most rich consumer markets, the basic needs are already met, and producers fight in vain to create demand in ever smaller segments. Meanwhile, on levels two and three, roughly two billion menstruating women have few alternatives to choose from. These women don't wear lycra and won't spend money on ultra-thin pads. They demand a low-cost pad that will be reliable throughout the day, so they don't have to change it when they are out at work. And when they find a product they like, they will probably stick to that brand for their whole lives. And recommend it to their daughters. The same logic applies to many other consumer products, and I have given hundreds of lectures to business leaders making this same point. The majority of the world population is steadily moving up the levels. The number of people on level three will increase from two billion to four billion between now and 2040. Almost everyone in the world is becoming a consumer. If you suffer from the misconception that most of the world is still too poor to buy anything at all, you risk missing out on the biggest economic opportunity in world history while you use your marketing spend to push special yoga pads to wealthy hipsters in the biggest cities in Europe. Strategic business planners need a fact-based worldview to find their future customers. Reality bites. You need the generalization instinct to live your everyday life, and occasionally it can save you from having to eat something disgusting. We always need categories. The challenge is to realize which of our simple categories are misleading, like developed and developing countries, and replace them with better categories, like the four levels. One of the best ways to do this is to travel, if you possibly can. That's why I made my global health students from the Karolinska Institute, the medical university in Stockholm, go on study visits to countries on levels one, two, and three, where they attended university courses, visited hospitals, and stayed with local families. Nothing beats a first-hand experience. Those students are usually privileged young Swedes who want to do good in the world, but don't really know the world. Some of them say they have traveled. Often they have had a cappuccino at a cafe next to an ecotourism agency, but never entered a single family home. On day one of a trip to Tiruvannantapuram, in Kerala in India, or Kampala in Uganda. They usually express surprise that the city is so well organized. There are traffic lights and sewage systems, and no one is dying in the street. On day two, we usually visit a public hospital. When they see that there is no paint on the walls and no air conditioning and sixty people to a room, my students whisper to each other that this place must be extremely poor. I have to explain that people living in extreme poverty have no hospitals at all. A woman living in extreme poverty gives birth on a mud floor, attended by a midwife with no training who has walked barefoot in the dark. The hospital administrator helps. She explains that 
not painting the walls can be a strategic decision in countries on levels two and three. It's not that they can't afford the paint. Flaking walls keep away the richer patients and their time-consuming demands for costly treatments, allowing hospitals to use their limited resources to treat more people in more cost-effective ways. My students then learn that one of the patients cannot afford to pay for the insulin he has been prescribed for his newly diagnosed diabetes. The students don't understand. This must be an advanced hospital if it can diagnose diabetes. But how bizarre if the patient cannot then afford the treatment. Yet this is very common on level two. The public health system can pay for some diagnosis for emergency care, and for inexpensive drugs. This leads to great improvements in survival rates. But there's simply not enough money, unless the costs come down, for expensive treatments for lifelong conditions like diabetes. On one particular occasion, a student's misunderstanding of life in countries on level two nearly cost her very dearly. We were visiting a beautiful and modern private hospital in Kerala, India, eight stories tall. We waited some time in the lobby for a student in our group who was late. After 15 minutes, we decided not to wait for her any longer and walked down a corridor and got into a large elevator, big enough to take several hospital beds. Our host, the head of the intensive care unit, pressed the button for the sixth floor. Just as the doors were sliding closed, we saw the young blonde Swede rush into the hospital lobby. Come, run faster, shouted her friend from the door of the elevator, and she stretched her leg out to stop the doors from closing. Everything then happened very quickly. The doors just continued to close tightly around my student's leg. She cried out in pain and fear. The elevator started moving upward. She cried out louder. Just as I realized this young woman's leg was going to get crushed against the top of the doorway, our host leapt across the elevator and hit the red emergency stop button. He hissed at me to help, and between us we prized the doors far enough apart to release my student's bleeding limb. Afterward, our host looked at me and said, I have never seen that before. How can you admit such stupid people for medical training? I explained that all elevators in Sweden had sensors on the doors. If something was put between them, they would instantaneously stop closing and open instead. The Indian doctor looked doubtful. But how can you be sure that this advanced mechanism is working every single time? I felt stupid with my reply. It just always does. I suppose it's because there are strict safety rules and regular inspections. He didn't look convinced. Hmm. So your country has become so safe that when you go abroad, the world is dangerous for you. I can assure you that the young woman was not all that stupid. She had simply and unwisely generalized from her own level four experience of elevators to all elevators in all countries. On the last day, we have a little ceremony to say goodbye, where I sometimes learn something about the generalizations other people make about us. 
On this particular occasion in India, my female students arrived on time, beautifully dressed in colorful saris that they had bought locally. The elevator door leg injury was nicely healed. They were followed ten minutes later by the male students, evidently hung over and dressed in torn jeans and dirty T-shirts. India's leading professor of forensic medicine leaned over to me and whispered, I hear you have love marriages in your country, but that must be a lie. Look at these men. What woman would marry them if their parents didn't make them? When visiting reality in other countries, and not just the backpacker cafes, you realize that generalizing from what is normal in your home environment can be useless or even dangerous. My First Time I do not mean to sound critical about my students. I am no better myself. In 1972, as a fourth-year medical student, I studied at the medical school in Bangalore. The first class I attended was on examining kidney x-rays. Looking at the first image, I realized this must be kidney cancer. I decided to wait a while before telling the class out of respect. I didn't want to show off. Several hands then went into the air, and the Indian students, one by one, explained how best to diagnose this cancer, how and where it usually spreads, and how best to treat it. On and on they went for thirty minutes, answering questions I thought only chief physicians knew. I realized my embarrassing mistake. I must have come to the wrong room. These must not be fourth-year students. These must be specialists. I had nothing to add to their analysis. On our way out, I told a fellow student I was supposed to be with the fourth years. That's us, he said. I was stunned. They had caste marks on their foreheads and lived where exotic palm trees grew. How could they know much more than me? Over the next few days, I learned that they had a textbook three times as thick as mine, and they had read it three times as many times. I remember this whole experience as the first time in my life that I suddenly had to change my worldview, my assumption that I was superior because of where I came from, the idea that the West was the best and the rest would never catch up. At that moment, 45 years ago, I understood that the West would not dominate the world for much longer. How to Control the Generalization Instinct If you can't travel, please do not worry. There are other ways to avoid using wrong categories. Find better categories. Dollar Street Anna would always insist that the trips I did with my students were a naive and unrealistic way to teach most people about the world. Few people wanted to spend their hard-earned money traveling to far-flung places only to try a pit latrine and experience the unglamorous everyday life on levels one, two, or three, far from the beach, the great cuisine, and bars, and the fairy tale like wildlife. 
Most people were just as uninterested in studying the data about global trends and proportions. And anyway, even looking at the data, it was pretty hard to understand what it meant for everyday life on different levels. Photos from Dollar Street, a project that Anna developed, can help teach armchair travelers about the world. Now you can understand how people live without leaving your home. Imagine all the homes in the world lined up on one long street, sorted by income. The poorest live at the left end of the street, and the richest live at the right end. Everybody else? Of course, you know it by now. Most people live somewhere in the middle. Your house number on this street represents your income. Your neighbors on Dollar Street are people from all over the world, with the same income as you. Anna has so far sent photographers out to visit about 300 families in more than 50 countries. Their photos document how people eat, sleep, brush their teeth, and prepare food. They capture what their homes are made of, how they heat and light their homes, their everyday items like toilets and stoves, and in total, more than 130 different aspects of their daily lives. We could fill a whole book with images showing the striking similarities between the lives of people living on the same incomes in different countries and the huge differences in how people live within countries. We have over 40,000 photos. You can visit Dollar Street at www.dollarstreet.org. What the photos make clear is that the main factor that affects how people live is not their religion, their culture, or the country they live in, but their income. On level one, you brush your teeth with a finger or a stick. On level two, you get a plastic toothbrush. On level three, you get one each. And level four, electric toothbrushes for everyone. The bedrooms, or kitchens, or living rooms of families living on Level 4 look very similar in the United States, Vietnam, Mexico, South Africa, or anywhere else in the world. The way a family living on Level 2 in China stores and prepares food looks very similar to the way a family living on Level 2 in Nigeria stores and prepares food. In fact, when you are one of the three billion people living on Level 2, whether you live in the Philippines, Colombia, or Liberia, the basic facts about your life are quite similar. Your house has a patchwork roof, so if it's raining, you might well get wet and cold. When you go to the toilet in the morning, it is smelly and full of flies, but at least there are some walls to give you some privacy. You eat the same for almost every meal, every day of the week. You dream about food that is more varied and more delicious. The light flickers because the electricity is unstable. You have to rely on moonlight on the nights when the power is out. You secure the door using a padlock. When you go to bed in the evening, you might brush your teeth with the same toothbrush as the rest of the family. You dream about the day when you don't have to share your toothbrush with Grandma anymore. 
In the media, we see photos of everyday life on level four and crisis on the other levels all the time. Google toilet, bed, or stove. You will get images from level four. If you want to see what everyday life is like on other levels, Google won't help.